Hello, it's Editing Douglas here. I just wanted to jump on before the start of this episode to apologize for a couple of things on my end. Number one, I'm sick. You can still hear it in my voice. This is like a week on from this episode as well. I'm still sick. I'm really sorry. I sound very nasally blocked and terrible. And I also sound terrible because my audio device is being quite weird and lovely at the moment where it's giving a lovely little fuzz underneath my track. I've done the best to EQ it out, but with my nasally voice as well, I sound quite terrible. So I apologize on behalf of that. But nonetheless, I hope you enjoy this episode of The 250. Thank you. Hello and welcome to The 250, the podcast where we go on a fun, enriching road trip with our pals to give our girlfriends some me time. I'm Douglas and with me as always is my co-host Jonathan. How are you, Jonathan? I'm doing great, Douglas. Thank you so much for asking. If this is your first time tuning into The 250, we've taken a snapshot of IMDb's top 250 movies of all time as of January 2020 and have been watching them from number 250 through to number one. In this podcast, we discuss our opinions, thoughts and reactions to the movies within. Today's movie is number 89, Requiem for a Dream. Three heroin junkies had to plan to make it big and free themselves and their families from the influence of drugs. Requiem for a Dream is directed by Darren Aronofsky, who you may know for Pi, Black Swan, and The Fountain. It is also written by Hubert Selby Jr., who is known for Fear X, Scotch and Milk, and Jonathan here has written an addendum saying, Not many credits. Not many cre- I think he's written, like, written for like uh, 10 films or something like that. Or like right. 10, 10 pieces, so some of them were like TV shows or something like that. And it Nine. was also written by Darren Aronofsky. Based on the book by- wait. Oh, wait, 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 He wrote a book that this is based on, that makes sense. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah, duh, yeah, he's the dude who wrote the book in the 70s. That's why yeah. he doesn't have many Are writing stupid? credits, Douglas. <laughs> Are we stupid? Okay. Yeah. Uh, neither Jonathan nor I have watched this film before, and what you just made me realise- is that they never say the word heroin in the film. And this is really showing how much of a narc I am. I was just like, they're doing drugs. I don't know what kind of drugs they're doing, but... I mean, they are doing, doing lots of drugs. Of drug. but they Hard are, drug. They are <laughs> yeah, doing but like the bu- big one. You know, the one yeah, yeah. that they're like shooting up, like in their veins mm. and stuff. Like, I, I'm very much not... <laughs> I will, I, I'm like... I, w- I will say I did have to ask my friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't really know. But it's also, I think it's also kind of nice that they never say that it's heroin, mm. you know, because it's, you know, it almost steers it away from the drug itself. It's just like, we all know it's a drug, but it could be any drug, really. I think, well, this is like post-train spotting. So, the, the movie sphere yes. has got, you know, yes, uh, a base expectation, or what's the term I'm looking for, for like heroin. There's an image when in our heads. When was the war on drugs in America? I think it was... Was that the 70s or was that around this time? Yeah, 70s or 80s, I think. It was the 70s. Yeah, it started in June of 1971. So, yeah, okay. This would have been... The time that Hubert would have written the book would have been relevant because the war on drugs was kind of still happening when good old Nixon went, drug abuse, public enemy number one, mm. where nobody gets to do drugs no more. Yeah. So, but it would have been very of- relevant at the time. Instead of helping people with uh, heroin, yeah, crippling heroin funny. addictions, they- uh, they Lock them up! Yeah. Oh, 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 you've got like a fingernail's worth of weed in your pocket. You're in prison. Goodbye. Yeah, uh, see you later. 
No, I I think it's good because people have like an image in their heads of like what a heroin junkie looks like, and I think if you had been front loaded with that, if you've already seen Train Spotting, you sort of you sort of have an idea of what to expect of that, and by mm. not saying it so explicitly, you sort of just take the characters they are a bit more, perhaps. I don't know if that was an intentional move, uh, especially with it being based on a book, but um, mm. also like. Heroin junkies don't go around saying, man, I love heroin. Heroin, heroin, heroin. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'm i not sure if heroin is really mentioned that many times in Trainspotting either. Um, but they're a bit more- no, They're no. a bit more explicit about it where they've got- About the, how they shoot They've got the spoon this, and the needle and the- Yeah. And in, that. in Requiem for a Dream, it's almost more stylized. That's a very stylized. That's the, the stylized movie. <laughs> That's a stylish movie. Well, it's a very stylish movie. <laughs> well, <it's> a very- <laughs> I, uh, I actually, there's a big repeated thing throughout the film, which is the sort of like, there's got to be a word for it. They're like these little repeated, like mini montage things, which yeah. um, are reminiscent of like an Edgar Wright or Guy Ritchie type deal. Edgar Wright does them a lot. There's like- the the scene with Scott Pilgrim doing his like laces up or there's like Hot Fuzz yeah. is full of little things where it's just like bam 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 slap snappy motion snappy motion snappy motion it sort of like gets you up to speed and they do it repeatedly for people doing drugs in this film it's like I think I don't remember all the motions but there's that the very obvious one with Requiem for a Dream where their like pupils dilate and they've mm. got like I think they show like a microscope or like a like a cross-section thing of the like the like stuff going, into, going the- into the the needle and then yeah. usually like the the belt or whatever that's like tying their arm but the whole and, sequence yeah. is like two seconds yeah which yeah. is uh also sort of <laughs> not glorifies is the word i'm looking for but it's it's it sort of separates you from the sort of nasty reality because i think it's yeah, you you only ever get to see them shoot it up. <laughs> I'm such a narc. You only ever get to see them do the thing, I think, twice in the film. Like, actually inject the needle and do mm. the thing. I think you only ever get to, like, actually see it twice. Whereas in train spotting, I think you get to see it every single time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there's that infamous scene of the, the like, needle. In- I'm actually, it's in this one, too, but a bit different. The scene of, like, Ewan McGregor and he was, like, almost considering doing it legit, like, injecting into his arm. Mm. And it was, like, a weird prosthetic silicon prosthesis thing. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently when um, Jared Leto was h- hanging out with heroin junkies to prepare for the film, he would shoot water into his veins. That's still- I hope he was shooting saline, <laughs> not just water. yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he said it was one of the shittiest things he'd ever done and he wasn't going to do it again. <laughs> this is this is worth talking about Jared Leto Douglas. He has- Yes, a- so weird. I like- I was like, His fa- this man's face looks very familiar. <laughs> I don't know who this is. And then, you know, the credits start coming up with- We'll get to it, but Clint Mansell's fantastic score, you know, humming away in the background. Um, and then Jared Leto's dumbass name pops up and I went, oh my God. Oh, did you not pick it? <laughs> nope. Not at all. Very, very rare occasion where I was not able to pick a face Mm. and put a name on it. Yeah. 
He's got a very bad reputation these days. Yes. Based on, you know, all his- The culty kind of shit that he does. Suicide Squad. 30 Seconds to Mars and- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, he does does pretty well in this. Like, I think this was- Yeah. It's a good role. Early on in his career. Good role for him, I think. This is a very Mm. good role for Jared Leto specifically because he does that very distant kind of a look very well. Interesting. Hmm. I think. You think? Um, I agree, perhaps. Mm. Uh, mm. I also had Marlon Way- Wayans, I think his surname is pronounced, who's his, like, Harry's buddy. Tyrone, yeah. Tyrone. I had a moment where I was like, is that the guy from Scary Movie? And then I was like, it no, no. the guy from Scary Movie. I was like, movie. that's so racist, dude. You can't just call <laughs> any black dude with a big forehead the guy from Scary Movie. And I looked at him like, oh, it is the guy from- Okay, cool. Oh, it's the guy from Scary Movie. <laughs> All right, yeah. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that, but uh, nice to know. <laughs> yeah, and, um, yeah. Plays a somewhat more serious character. Although, I think Scary Movie came out like a little while after. Actually, no, I think Scary Movie was- It was the year after. The first Scary Movie was 2001. I think Scary Movie was like four months. No, it was 2000. Same year. Same year. Yeah, I think it's like two months or four months after this or something. Like, he did one and then the other. Wild. Weird, weird experience that must have been. And, you know, you you wonder how much of Requiem he sort of channeled into- Yes. Scary movie. I mean, they are still pretty different. Like a a stoner and a heroin junkie are uh, two different creatures, let's say. Substance abuses, yeah. But no, it's cool to see him in like doing a serious role in a serious movie because really everything else he does is like sort of bottom of the barrel comedy stuff, it seems. He's yeah. in he's in White Chicks. He's in Little Man. Well, I think he he does. I could tell it in this. Like he has very good comedic timing. Mm. Which, while the lines, okay, no, he's got good comedic timing because he has good timing. Full mm. stop. You know the way he delivers all of his lines in Requiem for a Dream is pretty, pretty damn solid. Yeah. yeah. Uh, who else is there? Jared Leto, Marlon Wayans. Oh, Jennifer Connelly. Oh yeah. my god. Wow. Oh, my goodness gracious me. She's, I think, she's, Jennifer Connelly is like 50 now. So, that would mean she would have been 30 when this was filmed. Right. Yeah, she's 1970. So, she would have been 30. When the, she does not look 30. She, <laughs> she's got that baby face syndrome going on, man. Absolutely. Like, that's crazy. She looks great for her age. Good on you, Jennifer Connelly. And fantastic performance as well. I really, she's up there with, I could absolutely, if they did Requiem for a Dream in 20 whatever, 2020 something, I could absolutely see Rooney Mara playing this character because mm-hmm. it's so very that it's kind of source. They both share that same kind of energy. Yeah. And she's also in Top Gun Maverick, right? Yes, but that's a bit of a, a, a bit of a, on the, well, yes, she is. Yes. She, she plays <laughs> like the, like, not like other girls, like hard drinking bar uh, okay. barkeep character. Uh, um, Megan Fox in Transformers, or y- y- that yeah, kind of but energy, 50. like very I mean, obviously written by a male. Or the yeah, uh, the nice thing about her role in Top Gun Maverick is that she is pretty unapologetically fifty years old. Like. Yes. That's part of her character because, like, Tom Cruise can't really hide it anymore. So he need and, and you know what? Absolute props for them in that film to have a 50-year-old- Actually, I think Tom Cruise might be even older, but 
How old is Tom Cruise? Let's confirm this before I go saying. Let's my, find this out. My, my original thought. Da, 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 62. Okay, well. A little bit older. A little bit older. Wait, wait, when was she? 70. Eight years. Eight years would be the gap. I mean, yeah. that's a, you yeah, know, yeah. we're going to allow this. That's we're going to allow this. When you're that old, that's fine. I don't a, give a fuck. A 58-year-old male lead and a 50-year-old female lead. It's yeah. like a breath of fucking that, fresh air compared to some of the yeah, shit exactly. we've had recently. Where it's like, she was 20 and and uh, he was 40. Yeah. That's weird. Fucking vertigo. <laughs> My God. Uh, yeah, um, she, a lot of her stuff that she's sort of known for that sort of we've seen, like A Beautiful Mind, she, Mm. she seems to end up in a lot of roles where she has been stuck with like a piece of shit guy and she's sort of just like seething about it and like, yeah, she's like into it initially and then her character arc is like just hating this guy more and more. Um. So that's cool. That's cool. She, do- I mean, she does it very well. She does this sort of very not not subtle, like yeah, like I feel like seething is the only term I can really think of for it for the way that yeah. she acts, where she's just like fuck, fuck this whole situation. But I just yes, she yeah. sort of just has to slog through it type thing. Mm. Mm. Yeah, really, really enjoyed her in this one. And but Jesus- she's not the only one who is absent of blame either, because she is also. Oh. You know, no, she's addicted, you know, and that. The, some of the stuff where it's like her character and Jared Leto's character fighting one another, where I'm just like, man, you would not be fighting if you didn't have this fucking little gremlin in your brain being like, we need the thing and we need it now. Like, it's really the way that they handle that, the the need, the desire for the substance and the how much that can affect and destroy the relationships around you, I think, is very effortlessly played by both Connolly and Jared Leto. Mm. They're a good dynamic. Absolutely. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. I, I think she's stellar. And and we're sort of, like, I almost feel like they're- I think she got top casted just because she's maybe the most senior of the main cast, but Ellen Burstein as Sarah, Harry's mum. Literally- as iconic now as she was 23 years ago. Fucking My incredible. God, it's such a performance. Holy mm. shit. Mm. She's still working, She's by insane. the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Still actively working at the ripe old age of fucking 90 or whatever she'd be now. Like, nah, she's crazy. S- I was not expecting a performance that convincing, I will mm. say. But I do know Ellen Burstein because I know that she's done the hat trick. She's gotten uh, Emmy, a Tony and a Oscar. Ah. So, um, she's a very- What's a Tony for? Again? Versatile. Uh, stage. Tony is for stage. Oh! Tony's wow. for stage, Emmy's for screen and Oscar is for screen as well. But TV, film. Yeah, yeah. Emmy's a TV. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. No, she. I, I know her more from the stage world than I mm. do the screen world. But seeing her in this, oh my God. She has a monologue that you just fucking- I, I didn't realize we were in a monologue until about like 20 or 30 seconds into it. And I was going- <laughs> Ellen, babe, you've got to slow down. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna cry. Don't do this. <laughs> oh, holy crap! Uh, yeah, she She's does. So captivating. She works with like hallucinations and delusions and stuff in a way that the other characters don't. Like mm. she has a shitload more on her plate 
than the other three characters do. That's uh, uh, the majority of their situations are sort of interpersonal and hers is sort of like being an old lady largely cooped up in her apartment type vibes. Widowed. Yeah. 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 Uh, Freaking incredible. Very, um, very empathetic kind of character because mm. you can- You've seen those kinds of people before, mm. you know? Who- She just wanted to wear the red dress, man. Like She, she just wanted the red dress. Oh, uh, God. It's heartbreaking. Gutting. I mean, it, it, you can almost, yeah. like, sympathize, I think. Like, it's it taps into, like, a personal fear of loneliness as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, like, a relevancy yeah. and- Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The desire to be noticed, the desire to be loved, which- I think it's one of the core things of this film, and I realised it about halfway through. I think the film is about relationships and about love mm. and what happens when substance abuse is the spanner that's thrown into the works of mm. all of those relationships and the love and the care that you can have for another human. Because <sighs> substance abuse is it's a selfish thing, for sure, but a lot of the characters here are doing it with another person usually, except for in the case of Ellen Burstein's character, who is doing it much more so for herself and likely unintentionally. It's, yeah, yeah, just really, there's a, oh, fuck, I forget what the moment was, but I was like, man, it's about relationship. It's about love and it's about hmm. sharing experience the, with another person. Is it, was it, was it maybe the scene when Harry is visiting Sarah? Uh, I think so. After he's made a bunch of cash. Yeah. 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 Love of self and love of others. That's what I wrote. Yeah. That's cute. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. like that. Mm. Mm. Um, Another element that I want to talk about, because I think we sort of blasted over it, is like Jennifer Connelly's performance. Like the physical element that she has to sort of, that the actress yeah. had to go through for that. Mm. Fucking hell, dude. Jesus Christ. And- like, the, the commentary on body image and stuff like that through both her character and Ellen Burstyn's character, I mm. think, are as relevant today, if not more so, uh, with how social media is and everything. Like, it's- I was really, yeah, kind of taken aback by it. Mm. I was like, fuck, we're going there. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> well, I mean, and it's this- not awesome, but it's just, it's nice to, you know, bring a light to. <laughs> my, my last little moment is we get Keith, uh, Keith David again. Um. <laughs> and I will bring this up every time I see Keith David. We find Keith I David. just think of fucking Agent Cody Banks. <laughs> that is like, it's so stupid. I've seen the thing. Like, <laughs> I got no yeah, you excuse. you have something else that you could no excuse to, to associate but- him the way that I do, but. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucked up. Because I think in <laughs> Cody Banks, they lean into his, like, stupid, like, toothiness and, like, he's a lot more of a chatty character in that. <laughs> and you'll just <laughs> you put that side by side with his character in this film. How many films of the 250 has he come up in now? So, he's done, well, technically, The Nice Guys because that was a snub. Oh, yeah. And I'm almost certain I said this during The Nice Guys. You definitely did. Platoon. Uh, the Thing. The Thing. And now- Requiem for a Dream. He, um, fuck, he does a lot of roles. Yeah, he's been here, there, and everywhere. You know what my one was? Your, my mm-hmm. Keith David, mm-hmm. Mark Margolis, seeing that cheeky motherfucker again. Mark I was Margolis. like, hell yeah. It's very quick. Oh, yeah. Blink and you miss it, but he is there. Yeah, and, he seems and he's to, in pie as well. That's what I'm saying. He seems to work very closely with 
or worked very closely. He passed away in August um, oh. of this year, August 2023. He worked very closely with Darren Aronofsky uh, throughout the years, which I think is cool. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, he's, I mean, he's great in Pi as well. He's fucking so good in that movie. And, and uh, I did want to bring that up. Yeah. We, Douglas, I think, still hasn't seen it. I. What's that? Pi. Uh, Pi, yeah. I, it, yeah it's no, a lot, I but I put it up against. It's the other Jennifer Connelly film. Fuck, I was just looking at it. Beautiful Mind. You literally just yeah. said it earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's like Pi <laughs> is like if a if a Beautiful Mind was good, that's yes. Pi. <laughs> yeah. That's what you said in the Beautiful Mind episode as well. Yes. Very. I think I I think I ended up watching them like completely coincidentally. Ended up watching them in the same week or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, he's also he plays a stellar role in that film too. Mm. Mm. Yeah, do we I want to talk about watch the music? The rest of Darren Aronofsky's filmography. Uh yes, I've been. Can we talk about the music? I've been dying to talk to you about the music. Clint Mansell. Oh my god, this shit is iconic. It's influential. Mm. It's so incredibly unique and stylistic and perfect for the film. Where Train Spotting's soundtrack was let's pluck like all these songs from like 90s uh, london suburbia and pop culture darren aronofsky and clint mansell are just like let's just make let's get a string quartet and just (laughs) fuck it up like (laughs) it's so unique there i don't even my favorite tracks aren't even like Lux Eterna or Summer Overture, which are like some of the like the the big big tracks. I think my favorite one is either Southern Hospitality or The Beginning of the End. They're both basically the same song. But just the way it flip flops between the strings and then like the quietness of like the so perfectly with the film as well. It's almost I don't know how Clint Mansell possibly could have orchestrated this, whether he did it in conjunction with the film or whether, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Like, did the film come first and then the score or did the score come first and then the film? I don't know. But it's just so perfect. Cl- Clint Mansell has, I don't think he did anything for Pi. I'm not even sure that Pi has a score in hindsight, but he worked with, Darren, Arosco- uh, Darren Aronofsky, <laughs> Jesus, in the Bless future, you. he did Black Swan, I think. Yeah, Clint uh, Mansell did Black Swan. Oh, maybe he yeah. didn't. Maybe he didn't. Oh, this is like one of his first credits. So, you would hope that he had done- Yeah, on Spotify, some, it's his first thing. Some conversation with- Darren Aronofsky. Uh, oh my! Oh wow! <laughs> Darren. <laughs> yeah, Daz. <laughs> I'm trying to say his name too fucking fast. Um, I mean, Darren Aronofsky. I really like Coney Island Dreaming. That's like a super like chill, like understated track. It's the third one on the score. I I think it is interesting how they so they use the big, the overture. You know, the big uh, melody. Uh, four times. Um, I was glad to find that they are all like unique pieces for each. Yeah. Each time it gets used. Um, yeah. It wasn't like a Dangal thing where they're just like, oh, we just slap the same track back the, in there. You know, it's, it's, I think one of my favorite things about Lux Turner 
is the those bits. I don't know what it is mm. about those bits, but it just gives it such a like edginess, you know? Mm. Mm. It's it's definitely like 2000s techno inspired as well. Yes, yeah. That oh. that comes out like I think actually Dreams is like basically the same track as Coney Island Dreaming, I think. Slightly different. That's funny. Um like it's almost there are these sort of droney elements that were definitely I'm not gonna say definitely, but I think we're digital in some capacity, mm. and that allows you to do like big buildy stuff. Sarah Goldfarb has left the building is just like rising and rising and rising for an yeah. entire minute, and it's yeah. just like mm. ooh, yeah. stress the fuck out. Um, Perfectly yeah. accentuates all of the tension. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, nah, super cool. I just love the soundtrack so much. It's one of the, <laughs> I'm definitely gonna try and snag it on vinyl. I reckon I've already got. Three film soundtracks on vinyl. They are hmm. Her, The Batman, and Tenet. Good numbers. Good numbers. Yeah. Tenet yep. wasn't um wasn't the normal guy, was it? I'm, no, it was uh, Ludwig Ludwig Granson. I'm glad that I'm glad you picked that up with that small amount of the normal guy. <laughs> the, the normal it's guy. It's not Hans Zimmer. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know me well enough to say that's exactly what I'm- <laughs> to know exactly what you fucking. Oh my god! It's not the dude, is it? You know the guy. It's not the guy. You're, yeah, you're the, the guy, guy that who- I I listen to like all the time. Yeah, not that mm. guy. Not that dude. Oh uh, I do don't listen to Hans Zimmer that much. Um, you just like the Call of Duty soundtrack. Hey man, I do like a lot of his stuff. Yeah. Uh, Besides the Call of Duty soundtrack. Yeah. I do like the Call of Duty soundtrack. <laughs> well, anyway, I think we've been faffing about for a <laughs> considerable amount of time, Jonathan. I think it's time now. Would you recommend 2000's Requiem for a Dream? Content warning pending. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, uh, it's cool to have, like, I'm- I feel there's more to say with, like, a film about people sort of working through addiction. Um, it would be nice if there was a film that was sort of- There might be one. A film that that, that was, like, dire, you know, like, didn't end poorly in the way <laughs> that they tend to do. That's prob- there's probably a few out there, but I suspect there aren't any on the list where, like, someone going through the process- I think for this particular story, of- it needed to end dire, though. Yes, yeah. But also, I but I, I, I hear in what general, you're saying. Like yeah. there should be, yeah, films about addicts one. where where exactly. there's a happy ending, an opposite or a bittersweet, end of it. yes, a yeah. bittersweet yeah. ending at the very least. Yeah, but I think that like compared to like boxing films, you know, which we've had so many of, and I'm like, we are really milked that as much as we possibly can. <laughs> they, I, I I don't think there's much more interesting going on in. With boxing films as like a a medium, at least from what we've seen. Whereas this, I'm like, okay, this this makes sense to hit this again from a slightly different angle. Maybe not boxing films, but perhaps uh, WWE films. Do you see the trailer for that WWE inspired by true story, uh, The Iron Claw? It's got Zac Efron and Jeremy Allen White in it. I have not. <laughs> um, it just released. This is the other thing. Is I think a couple of I, days I think ago. We're- I think we're like so fatigued on the boxing films that it's like oh, another boxing film, fucking yeah, goddamn. Fucking Whereas like Dungal, it's like oh, it's a wrestling film. I'll see a wrestling yeah, film. Yeah, sure. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a wrestling film. So I'm actually I'm, yes. I'm excited to to see what that's about. 
But anyway, sorry, mm. I didn't mean to. Would you Would you right. recommend the film, Douglas? I would. I agree. Also, pending content. Content warning, warning pending. It did exhaust me and really challenge me, uh-huh. and and I cannot possibly imagine what watching this in the cinema would have been like. Ooh, yeah, because. It's so nice to just be able to either pause and step up for a second or to be able to go, this is a bit icky. I'm going to skip like five seconds and then we're just going to see what happens then, which I didn't. I didn't have I didn't skip. But oh, my God, did my finger hover over that fucking (laughs) button so many times, especially in the third act. Far out. It's it's very tough to watch. And there's a lot of films like that in the 250. And I hear a lot of people asking, especially of this film, why? You know? What's the point? What are we getting at mm. here? Why why do this incredibly depressive thing? Like, why make it? And I think it is trying to say something. And it is contributing to a conversation that I think is very important. But I think perhaps I'm, I'm not a part of this, but I can hear people who they watch the film and the stylistic qualities of it, the, you know, edgy 2000s kind of oppressive energy that it brings can conflict the Damn it! message Fuck! that it's trying to get Damn across. Damn it! This was going to be my point. This was going to be my fucking, like, like watershed moment. I was going to fucking damn it. Son of a bitch. I was so excited to talk about this. Fuck. <laughs> you piece of shit. Well, I just felt the same it. way. Like, uh, Jonathan, uh, what can I God say? God fucking um, damn it. Well, uh, let's get some content warnings happening, Chuck. Yeah, sure. Jonathan okay. got um, so angry that their little webcam cover like flipped down over their webcam and they were oh, in darkness for a second. Uh, I'm so excited to talk about this. Um, I, I, I would, I would just like to say that um, your like why thing, I can absolutely understand that perspective and probably yeah. somewhat agree with it. But I think Sarah's slice of the story itself is is really interesting and unique compared to a lot of other stuff we've seen. And it'd be the kind of thing where, like, it would be almost interesting to see that as a whole film, but it probably wouldn't have the mass appeal that they were sort of looking for. And I think also having, you know, people here, people there, is always good for a a story to sort of- Telling multiple perspectives, but there's still a thing that intertwines them all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway- Morris Perils. um, Yeah. Anyway, uh, content warnings, uh, the drug use is regular and blatant, so that's a pretty clear one. There's also a huge element to it with Jennifer Connelly's character basically having to, like, sell her body for, for drugs and money and stuff. Um, and the, the, the way that plays into the story is, I mean, it's confronting on its own and then it's like doubly confronting with the way that that plays into like people's relationships with her. And it's really grimy. The, the infamous ass to ass scene is, do I think infamous? Infamous ass to ass scene is, um, is pretty gross. There's some sort of body horror type stuff. Character gets the armor amputated. Yep. Uh, which could be a lot. And um, especially everything that leads up to that particular yeah. moment. That whole sequence is just and, and so it, yeah. much. 
Because it's it's stuff happening to all of the characters at the same time. And it's just, yeah, yeah. It's um very anxiety-inducing. And there's, like, I think it's the track the beginning of the end plays over it. It's, like, klaxon, like, screechy-ass strings. It's it's designed to make you feel as fucking miserable as possible. And it's also, like, super flashy and, like, mm. think, like... <laughs> think like the boat ride in <laughs> Willy Wonka. <laughs> it's like that kind of shit. It's just like flashing fuck? horrible shit on screen one after the other. So I think that on its own- not expecting that. Sh- should be its own like unique content warning. Like yeah. there's a lot of stuff that that sort of heightens the unniceness of the whole deal. So be aware, I suppose. Um, yeah, I was thinking about how we really seem to be getting- like these content warnings are just getting worse and worse, man. They're as getting we go dire down, dire and dire and dire. People really, really like lo- their depressive, horrific yeah. shit. You know. I'm looking forward to the Avengers, where the content warning is like, "There's aliens!" Whoa! Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot. Um. And <laughs> it is a different perspective, but is also, you know. Uh, I definitely see the, like, like what is the point angle I can- Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Very much anyway, behind that. There's your, there's your content warnings. It's, um- <laughs> There's your content warning. There's, there's your content warnings. Take them or leave them. And we're gonna <laughs> go. We're gonna head on. We're gonna have a spoiler noise. And now we're in the bloody spoiler zone. <laughs> what the fuck is this? Anything past this point- <laughs> May can will spoil two thousand a requiem for a dream. That's like my um, it's like uh, friendly Geordie's the- like like country old guy ah oh, okay. RSL I voice. <laughs> yes, requiem yes, yes. Now, for a dream. Now I'm got to put in like R's and you yeah. got to slow it down and put like gaps in it. Yeah. And you got a bit of modulation on your voice. <laughs> bloody get it up, yeah. Uh-huh. Get the heroin, stick it in the needle, bloody get it up, yeah. Have a bloody good night with some heroin. Uh <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for it to, you know, come to a kind of natural resolve, but it kind of never really I'm, did. I'm still fucking pissed because I had this exact thought as there's this this horrible flashing scene where all kinds of fucking miserable shit is happening and it's super confronting. And I was almost- I was saying to, like, my friends, like, I feel like the film undercuts itself with, like, you do still feel like you're in or watching, you know, a piece of art per se, as opposed to just the communication of a story in a purer form. And I think that makes it like, this is a snappy montage with big music. And you're like, I'm watching a snappy montage with big music. And it's making me separate a little bit from just how confronting the film wants to be. Which is, I mean, probably for the best. It probably makes it a little bit more palatable. But it is an interesting angle that it ended up taking, you know? I read some- Stuff from Darren Aronofsky and uh, dearest cinematographer Matthew Libertique. I thought that's what it was. I was just double checking. Um, Matthew Libertique has got a fair few films under his belt, um, even uh, prior to doing Requiem for a Dream, but he's mostly known for bringing a very kind of 
violent almost aspect to the way he shoots his films. He did one of my favorite uh, kind of B films, uh, Phone Booth, starring Colin Farrell, is shot by Matthew Libertique. Um, I love that movie. I think it's stupid and it's fun and it's great as just a almost a one-room thriller. Ooh. And he also did Venom, Birds of Prey, Iron Man 1 and 2, and Black Swan, notably. Uh, I like Birds of Prey. You like Birds of Prey. I haven't seen Birds of Prey yet mm. still. Um, but Have you seen- You've seen- Oh, no, because we did an episode on it, didn't we? On the Suicide, Suicide Squad. Suicide Squad. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, Suicide Squad. Yes, sorry. Not the Suicide seen- Squad. Would have been really- You haven't- You've seen the newer one. Yes. You've seen the second one that was pretty good. Yes. Okay. I would have loved it if they'd given a subtitle or something to make them easier to distinguish. <laughs> it's not James Gunn's vibe, you know? You've got to get as close to the uh, the OG as possible just to drive that knife all the deeper. <laughs> <laughs> but sorry, yes, what I was trying to say, uh, Matthew Libertique, the way he shoots his film is almost horror-like, you know? People, it's this film is usually lauded as a thriller, but at some points, I think, yeah, it's generally the energy and the vibe behind the camera feels very horror-like, which mm. I thoroughly enjoy. Same with Black Swan. Black Swan gets lauded as a, a thriller all the time, but I also think Black Swan is shot and directed like a horror first and a thriller second, which is very fun, I think, from a, yeah. from both Aronofsky and Libertique to handle the film in that way, I think is, yeah, really, really entertaining. I wonder if I liked Black Swan more. I think I did. Maybe. I think I liked them both equally. I think Black Swan, you don't feel like slimy at the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. It is always really, I, I do always feel really icky with the way that like most films handle like just sexual things in general, but like mm. sexual exploitation is like, oh, uh, and especially yucky bad one. always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, which is present in both of these films of the connection. Sorry. I should say. Yes. yes. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I did want to, I think we touched on it a bit and maybe there isn't heaps more to say about it, but I did really want to talk about how much more interesting and like visually inventive, uh, mm. Sarah's part of the film is. And I, mm. I mean, I already said this before in the pre-spoiler, like y- you could just have that as a film on its own. Like maybe you wouldn't have as much, it, like it doesn't really have a narrative thrust. It's sort of just like a downward spiral, spiral I suppose, yeah. but the, did you did you jump at the fridge, Douglas? Nope, didn't get me. I've watched enough horror <laughs> it films. Didn't get to me not either. Jump at the but it did get some. It did get some other people in the room. And like, <laughs> I don't know why it didn't get me. I think maybe the the, the Man, film had already month. sort of. I gotta get. I gotta get too. my horror movie quite up because I'm mm. I'm slacking at the moment. Actually, I think the film had already. I mean, the fridge had already shifted at her exactly. at some point. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, once yeah. it, when it, but like. I wish I'd looked it up before we did this, actually. Like, the animatronic, I suppose, or, like, puppetry to make the fridge sort of, like... Yes. I've got a point. I'm getting Douglas' the, point at me. Um, the... This is... It's in the trivia, but I'm going to say it anyway. They're, they put so many lights inside of the fridge uh, for the bit where it, like, opens up that mm. the fridge actually melted from the inside. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Wow, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So they really fucked that fridge up. But mm. yeah. I don't know how they yeah. did it. But they um I mean it's, it's probably cool. it's probably not that complicated. Just a little bit of um, yeah, smoke and mirrors, but and and you know, there's heaps of sort of extra digital processing stuff. There's the bit with what's his name? Tib Tibby Tippy 
the uh oh yeah the bit where they both come into the game show host guy like there's all that they're they're sort of dropping like making it like the sort of dark dank place that she's tappy tibbins tappy Tappy Tibbin- Tibby Tappins, as we call him. It's <laughs> my next here on the two D&D fire, character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Tibby Tappins. That's good, actually. Ta- Tibby Tappins. Yeah. yeah. It's a half- uh, No, That's a, a halfling, I think. Yeah, halfling, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Halfling barbarian. Uh, <laughs> halfling barbarian. <laughs> Tippy Tappins. Yeah, or a gnome, Douglas. Always tips twice. <laughs> always, always Tibby Tips. Always tabs. Always tap. Always sets so, up the tap on your tippy. <laughs> but there's all this, like, crazy shit with her, um, like, her perception. I don't know if that- I don't know if that happens in the start of the film. I don't think it is. Where she's, like, watching the show and then as she's going through, like, she starts seeing herself on the show. But that's when she's, like, basically in the deep end, you know? Mm. She's, she's gone over the edge. And- Fun, cute elements, like, even when she's got herself all made up and she's in the dress, like, the version of her on the TV is, like, a much nicer dress and, like, perfect, like, sculpted makeup and, yeah. you know, everything's all- um, The dress has got these, like, dope ruffles on the front of it. Mm. I love that shit. Just but <laughs> sticking her in front of this massive TV. I don't know. It was, it, was, it was very cool, whereas the rest of it is played fairly straight, except for some- there's the classic, like, it's, it's, uh, like Clockwork Orange style, fast, you know, time lapse of yeah. people, like, fucking around in their, mm. uh, apartment. Uh, also, train spotting, I think, but, did that as well. Like, they toy with that one person traveling in regular speed and then everything else all, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, going The scene with her and the, around it. the doctor and things are, like, going yeah. in and out. And yeah. That's miserable. Some of the fish island stuff on that is so good too, as well. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, you, I, 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 it hit me really hard. I, I don't know if it hit you as bad, but when she's like at the doctor and she's like, I forget what she says, but she's like, "This shit's fucking me up." And the doctor's like, oh, "It's normal, whatever. Yeah, keep taking yeah. it. Three a day. Blah yeah. blah blah." Mm. And you're like, "Oh wow, okay, we're really in it now." Yeah. yeah. I know the film has been criticised for the commentary the film makes towards the health department at large uh as in regard to it's not it's not like it's implied that he's a very shady doctor exactly yeah 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 this is this isn't like a normal doctor like she had to go through a friend of a friend to get a guy who will give her prescription amphetamine yeah yeah i also oh actually while we're talking about that particular scene the the first time she goes to the doctor and when he comes in, there's no background outside of the room that they're in. You know, when he opens the mm. door, it's just a dark blue background behind him. Like, there's no rest of the office or the, the hospital or whatever it is that they're at. It's just mm. isolated to the room that Sarah is in, which I'm not sure whether the film does it in too many other spots, but it only ever gives what is relevant. I think, in a lot yeah. of scenarios, which I think is very cool and uh, is a good way of trying to avoid overstimulating your audience to as best <laughs> as you can while the film is already so stylistic and whiplashy and, you know, uh, frenetic to, in a production design sense, keep everything to 
okay, this is all you need to know. Like, from mm. Sarah's apartment down to the entrance where all the other lovely little old ladies all hang out on their chair, fold-out chairs and soak up the sun, from point A, Sarah's apartment, to the door to the apartment building, we don't know what that looks like because it doesn't matter. Mm. There's, there's nothing there. It's, it's just a... We know she leaves her apartment and we know she gets down there. Between those two points, fucking who cares? It doesn't matter. Yeah, very, very cool. Claustrophobic, Douglas, almost. Exactly. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Yep. Mm. Serve it in service um, to the tension. Yeah. It's like the opposite of last week's film, Vertigo. Yeah. Which has a lot going on in its sets. <laughs> and very spacious, actually, as well, Vertigo. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of negative space in that film, now that I think about it. Yeah. Uh, another thing uh, we talked about last week that I feel like I should repeat this week, uh, the Requiem Lu- Luxe Turner, which I was like, is that the Saw song? <laughs> is that the film that's got the... <laughs> Fuck, I can't... Now, because we just listened to the soundtrack, I can't think of how the Saw song Yeah, you can't remember now. what the Saw song sounds like. Fuck! But they're both very similar. They're similar vibes, yeah. I think, exactly. Um, yeah. I think it's just the string. Saw soundtrack. Uh, I don't want Saw X. I want Saw 1, please. Yeah, everyone's going crazy for Saw X. People are saying it's, like, one of the best in the franchise in a long time. Well, okay, so there's- the, is this Zep track? Hello, Zep? Yes. Zep, yeah, Zep, yeah, Zep, yeah. Zep thing? Yeah. It's, um- it almost sounds like piano-y. It sounds like struck strings or, like, plucked strings as opposed to- Oh, yeah, that's it. You know what this sounds like? This shit sounds like Hans Zimmer type stuff. Yes, definitely. Actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very, yeah. very... Anyway. Because all the brass anyway, and anyway. stuff in it going... Blah, blah. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, cool. Uh, uh, I've sort of reached the end of my thoughts. Shining thought light moments. moment? Yeah. <sighs> uh, no. <laughs> I don't mind. And you're going to wish you had it. Yours. You're going to wish you had it when I tell you what it is. Yeah. Okay, hit me with it. Jennifer Connelly, uh, when she's bundled up in the bathtub... And the shot where she screams in- Oh, yeah, that is good. Perfect blue. forgot about that. Perfect blue reference. Oh, did not notice. Because Aronofsky has been down bad for perfect blue (laughs) ever since it came out. And ever since he's been trying to fucking mimic it. It's funny because, like, I think the Black Swans are, like, a better- It's Black Swan versus perfect blue. They're not the same. No. But there's a lot of similarities. Mm. And I think Black Swan is better. Like wow. Perfect Blue is a is a pretty fun story, but I think the ending of it is like it explains its ending, which it didn't need to do. Uh, like there's no mystery to it at the end. I mean, there's not mm. like mystery mystery to the end of Black Swan. You sort of know what happened, but it was like on the way there, you, you still... have no fucking idea what's going on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Like it wrap Perfect Blue wraps up too neatly. I feel um, that's interesting, and that makes sense why Aronofsky would. Pull a story together like that if he was like so keen on that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I'm now listening to my second favorite part of the soundtrack, which is Bugs Got a Devilish Grin Conga, the weird fucked up conga track. It's so good. I forgot about this because the brass just goes (laughs) insane. It's just like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, amazing track. Well, yeah, that's about all I got. Cool. Do we want to head over to the trivia zone, Douglas? Sounds good. 
Darren Aronofsky shot the film like a hip-hop montage, a sequence of extremely short shots to get the sense of overwhelming addiction and loss of control. An average 100-minute film contains 600 to 700 cuts. This one contains over 2,000. Yeah, wow. Yeah. You punch those numbers up with those little mini montages. Yeah, exactly. Really, up we go. Yeah, sky's the limit. Director Darren Aronofsky described this film as exploring different types of addiction, saying, quote, The Harry Tyrone Marion story is a very traditional heroine story, but putting it side by side with the Sarah story, we suddenly say, oh my god, what is a drug? The idea that the same inner monologue goes through a person's head when they're trying to quit drugs and cigarettes as when they're trying to not eat food so they can lose 20 pounds was really fascinating to me, end quote. Mm, mm. It is truly, like, the more interesting element to it i think like it's it's so hard to watch and even think about the yeah. the, the angle of the sexual exploitation of jennifer connelly's character mm. is is very interesting and also unique compared to something like train spotting um but it's also like so unsavory that i'm like i wouldn't really be that heartbroken if i hadn't seen yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting but, yeah, but i don't Sarah's really whole section is like and, and, you know, it's like the classic thing is like, there are, we don't really have as many old people in films and th- these kinds of problems aren't explored in films. Whereas like cool, hip, Jared Leto pounding cocaine and smoking weed, like <laughs> that, you know, that's more marketable basically. Yeah. So yeah. it's cool that's sort of weaseled in there. Yeah, most definitely. At around 44 minutes during Ellen Burstein's impassioned monologue about how it feels to be old, cinematographer Matthew Libertique accidentally let the camera drift off target. When director Darren Aronofsky called cut and confronted him about it, he realised the reason Libertique had let the camera drift was because he had been crying during the take and fogged up the camera's eyepiece. This was the take used in the final print. Damn. Shit, Good man. stuff. Like, that's- Yeah, that's, that's rough. <sighs> That's endgame stuff for an actor. Like, if you can get the mm. people, the crew who are watching you to tear up, man, man. Ah. Oh. That's Avengers endgame stuff, Douglas. For real. I'm so jealous of <laughs> Ellen Burstein. She's such a good actor. In an interview with Charlie Rose, Ellen Burstein stated that, in her opinion, playing Sarah Goldfarb was her best acting achievement. Mm, yeah. I have seen i don't think any of her other works but <laughs> yes yeah, yeah. I thought it was really good a, set that bar very high mm. in addition to having a camera mounted to her for certain sequences snorri cam ellen burstein oh, spent four hours snorri cams in this <laughs> yeah, god damn it i knew it i was like i'm gonna trigger something here ellen burstein oh, spent man. four hours every morning being fitted with prosthetics wearing four different necks both fat and emaciated Two different fat suits, a 40-pound and a 20-pound suit, and nine different wigs. Wow. Wow. Well- Put her through the ringer. At least they- uh, Yeah, at least they weren't putting her through a crash diet to make it work. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were just like, no mm. prosthetics. You, you don't have to I, do I, the I Christian was Bale. completely convinced. Yeah, no, it's very convincing. Yeah. 100% props to the- Props department and the prosthetic prosthetics department and the mm. makeup department. When Sarah Goldfarb is on the subway and is telling strangers that she's going to be on TV, a man tells her, you are whacked. That man was Darren Aronofsky's father and he improvised the line. <laughs> That's funny. Oh, what was the other one? I saw that the writer was in, he has a, he's one of the security guards. Like one of, sorry, not the security guards, one of the cops. I think one of the cops that- Oh, Hubert prison guard. Selby Jr. Yeah. It might be a prison know. guard, maybe. It's his only photo on his IMDb page. Couldn't tell you. It's sort of, in fact, it sort of feels like it's like in line with um, 
uh, Tarantino always put like playing like miserable villain characters when in his own films. Mm. Perhaps, yeah, the, less gross. He doesn't say the n word, so good on you, uh, Hubert. <laughs> <laughs> While Tappy Tibbins mentions several times that there are three steps to his program, <laughs> only two steps are ever mentioned in the film. Tappy tells his audience to avoid red meat and to avoid sugar. But Sarah is always prevented from hearing the third step. Director Darren Aronofsky had intended the third step to be the removal of pharmaceuticals from the equation. The film's producers asked Aronofsky to change the third step because they were concerned that pharmaceutical companies would feel that the film's message was targeting them or encouraging people to avoid taking medication. The third step was changed to no orgasms and filmed as such, but Aronofsky edited the footage so that Sarah would either start to daydream or feel the effects of the drugs and be unable to hear the third step. It can, however, still be briefly seen in the final film, written on Tappy's whiteboard at 10 minutes and 36 minutes, and it's also included in full as supplementary material on some releases of the film. That sucks because the no pharmaceuticals bit is the more... Interesting angle. Poignant. Yeah. Yeah. Hubert Selby Jr. wrote the novel in 1978 when medical facilities were inadequate and often abusive and uncaring of their patients. This film doesn't mention the area it's the error it's set in, but as it includes a reference to pop star Madonna, it can be thought to be in the mid to late 1980s at the earliest. Ironically, the film was criticised for showing medical institutions in a bad light. Yeah, I mean, we've already talked about why that's like a stupid yeah. criticism. Yeah. It's, it's a funny thing with like, on one hand, it is legitimately like you don't want to Spread misinformation show, or, like, yeah. yeah. show hospitals as untrustworthy and, th- and shit like that. Like, that was a problem in A Beautiful Mind as well. Mm. But, or I guess A Beautiful Mind was more like trust of um, drugs for schizophrenia. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, it is America. And their medical system is fucking terrible. <laughs> yeah. According to director Darren Aronofsky, Tyrone is the only person capable of reclaiming his life. This can be seen in his last scene in prison. He recalls memories of his mother fondly. Mm-hmm. I suppose. Not really. Yeah, I mean... Nah, I reckon Harry could spin it on back again. Yeah. Get a sick robot arm. Yeah, exactly. Give him the robot arm and then he's, he's good to go. Uh, and then finally, Darren Aronofsky says the scene where Harry goes to visit Sarah was his favourite scene in Hubert Selby Jr.'s novel. It was the scene that ultimately motivated Aronofsky to make the film. It is his favourite moment in the finished film. Aronofsky feels this scene is representative of the whole story, how it's about the difficulty addicts find connecting with the people they love. The scene has three sections, the light side when things are pleasant at the beginning, the dark side when the two began to argue after Harry finds Sarah's drugs, and back to the light side when Sarah makes her confession at the end. Aronofsky sees Ellen Burstyn capturing this performance in this scene as his proudest moment. Aronofsky notes all of Burstyn's performance in the confession moment was from one single take. She actually did three takes, but she did each take differently. They couldn't be combined or cut together as a result. Burstyn is actually out of frame at one point at the end of the take used. Aronofsky was pissed when he noticed this during filming. However, the bit with Libertique. After filming a completed, Burstyn told Aronofsky that it might happen only once during a stage performance where she would feel like she had completely become the character. She told him that it had happened three times while filming. One was the confession scene. The next scene is when Sarah had lost it and is trying to explain herself to the TV production company. And the last is the very end dream sequence where Sarah and Harry come together on Tibbins' show. This moment was filmed on the first day of filming. 
The only way Aronofsky can describe what Burstein is doing in Requiem is that she's surfing the character. He also compares the actress to Michael Jordan in that they both completely lose themselves in the job they're doing. Wow, okay. Uh, weird comparison, but cool. Yes. I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> weird. I mean, if you if you front load, it's your, your chance. Filming, do your dance. It's the space jam. Exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you front loaded your filming with this scene, like you're like, okay, I've got the character down now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the rest yeah. of this is gonna be a fucking cakewalk. <laughs> nah, for real. I've definitely been in that too. When you you know the character inside out, and you feel completely comfortable to yeah to surf it to surf their headspace and like what they think and how they talk and all that kind of stuff gives you so much freedom yeah Mm. anyway that's it yeah well uh douglas and i both put out (laughs) every single time two episodes of the 250 every week tuesday midnight australian is the stand time which comes out to monday morning afternoons in europe monday mornings in america Douglas Wings will go with more info time. on the podcast. If you want more info on the podcast, you can go to www.250.com. There's a full list of IMDb's top 250 films of all time as of January 2020 on the homepage there. And there's three links at the top of the website. And I'm not going to tell you what they are because you're going to go to Ooh. 250.com and find out for yourself. <laughs> That's it. Uh, <laughs> Douglas, <laughs> Douglas and I both use Letterboxd, which is a movie tracking and reviewing website. Uh. We are great big fans of. My account on Letterboxd is Upa, that is U-U-U-P-A-H, and Douglas. My account is Ienzo Knight, I-E-N-Z-O-K-N-I-G-H-T, Ienzo Knight. You can look up Upa, Ienzo Knight, or 250 in the Letterboxd search engine, and you'll find us. We do written reviews of all the films that we talk about here on the 250s, or anything else that we watch in our spare time. Uh, I've not had the chance to watch anything in my spare time, so there is nothing to um, report on my end this week. I watched... Crazy Stupid Love, Douglas. <laughs> what the fuck? Okay. Wait, is that the one with <laughs> Amelia Clark? It's the one with- No, it's, um, uh, what's his name from The Office and Ryan Gosling. Oh, Steve um, Carell. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what the fuck? And Emma Stone and- Oh, yeah, Julian Moore. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. And? Which is- I mean, it's still a very funny film. Um, it's, like, very bizarre and it's- It feels very- sort of cheap rom-com there's this whole fucking subplot where like steve carell's son is in love with the babysitter and the babysitter is in love with steve carell and steve carell's like i don't want to fuck a 17 year old i'm 40 <laughs> and um that that is like a whole side plot to everything else uh it's it's very interesting like the angle it has on on i guess toxic masculinity basically like Ryan Gosling's whole character is like a like a pickup artist and it works for him like incredibly but Steve Carell's like success comes from being genuine. Anyway, um no it's a fun film. The other thing I did, I got a message from Luke, friend of the podcast, uh friend of mine from high school. Go on, you Luke. Who I haven't seen in forever. That you're probably listening to this because I think he listens to a lot of the episodes. Uh, and he <laughs> reached out <laughs> with, because he's a big movie guy. He is a movie maker in Australia. And I think we watched, maybe it was just me that watched. I've forgotten it now because I think it came out a couple of years ago, but some of his short films mm. from a little while back. Um, and he said, Hey, you know how you had this 
insane tirade about that office scene early in to Vertigo where there's like the angles keep changing and it's really odd. And I talked about how I didn't fucking get it and also how I didn't want to rewatch the film. And he's like, here's like a, here's like a little seven minute YouTube video that sort of tells you exactly why everything is the way that it is and why you probably should watch the film again. And I was like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Luke calling so, your ass out. That's what I want. Yeah. That's what I want. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing with this podcast is that we do very much we, yeah. take an amateur's perspective. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes not always the best perspective. Absolutely. But, uh, but a raw but and yes, genuine no. perspective, nonetheless. Mm, absolutely. Unbridled I mean, by the weight the- of- uh, Public opinion. Exactly. Douglas. And film, film critique. I'm using air quotes. Film. 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 Um, which is good because we can probably, I can probably go back to it and then update my feelings on the film when I've had another crack at it. Yeah. So yeah. we've got both of them. Nah, uh, when we finish the, the 250, I'm absolutely going to have another crack through all of these Hitchcock films. Um, there's, mm. I'm, I'm already doing up my rewatch list of the 250 Ooh. when we get back to it. The re-250. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Um. Just mm. do it in my spare time to just, you know, there's a couple where I'm like, I think I might get that better on the second one, which I think Requiem falls into that hole for me as well. I'm, I'm like, I think I do want to give it another crack because at the moment, if you look at my letterbox, I don't give it a rating. I'm just like, I liked it, but and I recommend it mm. and I enjoyed watching it, but <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> Um, it's a bit of a it's a weird first watch absolutely yeah and yeah. this is this is not movies but the other thing i did this week was i played through 2013's enslaved odyssey to the west i think it's called congratulations on enslaved odyssey to the west's 10 year anniversary yeah absolutely <laughs> um <laughs> it was it's this, like weird this like ps3 PS3 era game mm-hmm. that I saw like a video review of as a kid and has been in the back of my head ever since. Wow. It's, it, it was, I guess, I guess what might be interesting to people watching or listening to this podcast rather is its story and the way that it also seems to ride on this trope that we see a lot more of this. I couldn't find like a name for it. The Last of Us is the sort of classic one oh, yeah. where it's not it's not like it's not like enemies to lovers, it's like enemies to close uh friends. <laughs> this I mean, it's sort of just the classic two people journey and become very close through that sort of story. Reluctantly have to, you know. That being the absolute yeah. core of the story. Um it's a shame that this Game very clearly did not get the fucking time and money it deserved because they wrapped that shit up quick. Yeah. You're like, oh, cool. We're at the evil robot construction facility <laughs> where we're going to face off against the bad guy. And I can't wait for two <laughs> more hours of- I can't wait for two more hours of, like, cool gameplay. The check and bounced. <laughs> them breaking down the story. And then it is a six-minute cutscene. And it's like, oh- <laughs> okay, and it's over. So, Check bounce. an interesting experience, yeah. at the very least, Douglas. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> mm. Anyway, 
what a great point to end the podcast on talking about a movie a video game from 10 years ago instead of any kind of standard visual medium i'm just listening to the congress song again it's <laughs> oh my god staring off into the point. fucking middle distance yep. we're going we're going goodbye thank you so much for listening i'm sorry uh, I'm and remember remember don't do drugs remember do the conga do the conga i love the conga hey, bro, hey, bro, all right hey, i'm going ah, hey, bro, hey, bro, hey, ah.